Chapter forty three, part two of Life and Adventures of Martin Chuzzlewit. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Life and Adventures of Martin Chuzzlewit by Charles Dickens. Chapter forty three, part two. Martin could hardly be a mortal man, and not express in his face something of the anger and disdain with which Mr. Pecksniff inspired him. But beyond this he evinced no knowledge whatever of that gentleman's presence or existence. True, he had once, and that at first, glanced at him involuntarily, and with supreme contempt. But for any other heed he took of him there might have been nothing in his place save empty air. As Mr. Pecksniff withdrew from between them, agreeably to the wish just now expressed, which he did during the delivery of the observations last recorded, old Martin, who had taken Mary Graham's hand in his, and whispered kindly to her, as telling her she had no cause to be alarmed, gently pushed her from him behind his chair, and looked steadily at his grandson. "'And that,' he said, "'is he. Ah, that is he.' "'Say what you wish to say, but come no nearer.' "'His sense of justice is so fine,' said Mr. Pecksniff, "'that he will hear even him, although he knows beforehand that nothing can come of it. Ingenuous mind!' Mr. Pecksniff did not address himself immediately to any person in saying this, but assuming the position of the chorus in a Greek tragedy, delivered his opinion as a commentary on the proceedings.' "'Grandfather,' said Martin, with great earnestness, "'from a painful journey, from a hard life, from a sick bed, "'from privation and distress, from gloom and disappointment, "'from almost hopelessness and despair, I have come back to you.' "'Rovers of this sort,' observed Mr. Pecksniff as chorus, "'very commonly come back when they find they don't meet with the success "'they expected in their marauding ravages.' "'But for this faithful man,' said Martin, turning towards Mark, "'whom I first knew in this place, "'and who went away with me voluntarily as a servant, "'but has been throughout my zealous and devoted friend, "'but for him I must have died abroad, "'far from home, far from any help or consolation, "'far from the probability even of my wretched fate "'being ever known to any one who cared to hear it. "'Oh, that you would let me say of being known to you!' The old man looked at Mr. Pecksniff. Mr. Pecksniff looked at him. "'Did you speak, my worthy sir?' said Mr. Pecksniff, with a smile. The old man answered in the negative. "'I know what you thought,' said Mr. Pecksniff, with another smile. "'Let him go on, my friend. The development of self-interest in the human mind is always a curious study. Let him go on, sir.' "'Go on,' observed the old man, in a mechanical obedience, it appeared, to Mr. Pecksniff's suggestion." "'I have been so wretched and so poor,' said Martin, "'that I am indebted to the charitable help of a stranger, "'in a land of strangers, for the means of returning here. "'All this tells against me in your mind, I know. "'I have given you cause to think I have been driven here wholly by want, "'and have not been led on in any degree by affection or regret. "'When I parted from you, Grandfather, I deserved that suspicion. "'But I do not now. I do not now.' The chorus put its hand in its waistcoat and smiled. "'Let him go on, my worthy sir,' it said. "'I know what you are thinking of, but don't express it prematurely.' Old Martin raised his eyes to Mr. Pecksniff's face, and, appearing to derive renewed instruction from his looks and words, said once again, "'Go on.' 
"'I have little more to say,' returned Martin. "'And as I say it now, with little or no hope, grandfather, "'whatever dawn of hope I had on entering the room, "'believe it to be true. "'At least believe it to be true.' "'Beautiful truth!' exclaimed the chorus, looking upward. "'How is your name profaned by vicious persons?' "'You don't live in a well, my holy principal, but on the lips of false mankind. "'It is hard to bear with mankind, dear sir,' addressing the elder Mr. Chuzzlewit. "'But let us do so meekly. It is our duty to do so. "'Let us be among the few who do their duty.' "'If,' pursued the chorus, soaring up into a lofty flight, "'as the poet informs us, England expects every man to do his duty. "'England is the most sanguine country on the face of the earth,' and will find itself continually disappointed. "'Upon that subject,' said Martin, looking calmly at the old man as he spoke, but glancing once at Mary, whose face was now buried in her hands, upon the back of his easy-chair, "'upon that subject, which first occasioned a division between us, my mind and heart are incapable of change. Whatever influence they have undergone since that unhappy time has not been one to weaken but to strengthen me. I cannot profess sorrow for that, nor irresolution in that, nor shame in that. Nor would you wish me, I know. But that I might have trusted to your love, if I had thrown myself manfully upon it. That I might have won you over with ease, if I had been more yielding and more considerate. That I should have best remembered myself, and forgetting myself, and recollecting you. Reflection, solitude, and misery have taught me. I came resolved to say this, and to ask your forgiveness— not so much in hope for the future as in regret for the past. For all that I would ask of you is that you would aid me to live. Help me to get honest work to do, and I would do it. My condition places me at the disadvantage of seeming to have only my selfish ends to serve. But try if that be so or not. Try if I be self-willed, obdurate, and haughty as I was, or have been disciplined in a rough school. Let the voice of nature and association plead between us, grandfather, and do not, for one fault, however thankless, quite reject me. As he ceased, the grey head of the old man drooped again, and he concealed his face behind his outspread fingers. "'My dear sir,' cried Mr. Pecksniff, bending over him, "'you must not give way to this. It is very natural and very amiable, but you must not allow the shameless conduct of one whom you long ago cast off— to move you so far. Rouse yourself. Think, said Pecksniff. Think of me, my friend. I will, returned old Martin, looking up into his face. You recall me to myself. I will. Why, what? said Mr. Pecksniff, sitting down beside him in a chair which he drew up for the purpose, and tapping him playfully on the arm. What is the matter with my strong-minded compatriot, if I may venture to take the liberty of calling him by that endearing expression? "'Shall I have to scold my coadjutor, or to reason with an intellect like this? I think not.' "'No, no, there is no occasion,' said the old man. "'A momentary feeling, nothing more.' "'Indignation,' observed Mr. Pecksniff, "'will bring the scalding tear into the honest eye, I know.' He wiped his own elaborately. "'But we have higher duties to perform than that. "'Rouse yourself, Mr. Chuzzlewit. "'Shall I give expression to your thoughts, my friend?' "'Yes,' said old Martin, leaning back in his chair and looking at him, half in vacancy and half in admiration, as if he were fascinated by the man. "'Speak for me, Pecksniff. Thank you. You are true to me. Thank you.' 
"'Do not unman me, sir,' said Mr. Pecksniff, shaking his hand vigorously, "'or I shall be unequal to the task. "'It is not agreeable to my feelings, my good sir, "'to address the person who is now before us, "'for when I ejected him from this house, "'after hearing of his unnatural conduct from your lips, "'I renounced communication with him for ever. "'But you desire it, and that is sufficient. "'Young man, the door is immediately behind the companion of your infamy. "'Blush if you can. "'Be gone without a blush if you can't.' Martin looked as steadily at his grandfather as if there had been a dead silence all this time. The old man looked no less steadily at Mr. Pecksniff. "'When I ordered you to leave this house upon the last occasion of your being dismissed from it with disgrace,' said Mr. Pecksniff, "'when stung and stimulated beyond endurance by your shameless conduct to this extraordinarily noble-minded individual, I exclaimed, "'Go forth!' I told you that I wept for your depravity. Do not suppose that the tear which stands in my eye at this moment is shed for you. It is shed for him, sir. It is shed for him. Here Mr. Pecksniff, accidentally dropping the tear in question on a bald part of Mr. Chuzzlewit's head, wiped the place with his pocket-handkerchief and begged pardon. It is shed for him, sir, whom you seek to make the victim of your arts, said Mr. Pecksniff, whom you seek to plunder, to deceive, and to mislead. It is shed in sympathy with him, and admiration of him, not in pity for him, for happily he knows what you are. You shall not wrong him further, sir, in any way, said Mr. Pecksniff, quite transported with enthusiasm, while I have life. You may bestride my senseless course, sir, that is very likely. I can imagine a mind like yours deriving great satisfaction from any measure of that kind. But while I continue to be called upon to exist, sir, you must strike at him through me. Ah! Oh, said Mr. Pecksniff, shaking his head at Martin with indignant jocularity, and in such a cause you will find me, my young sir, an ugly customer." Still Martin looked steadily and mildly at his grandfather. "'Will you give me no answer?' he said at length. "'Not a word?' "'You hear what has been said,' replied the old man, without averting his eyes from the face of Mr. Pecksniff, who nodded encouragingly. "'I have not heard your voice. I have not heard your spirit,' returned Martin. "'Tell him again,' said the old man, still gazing up in Mr. Pecksniff's face." "'I only hear,' replied Martin, strong in his purpose from the first, and stronger in it as he felt how Pecksniff winced and shrunk beneath his contempt. "'I only hear what you say to me, grandfather.' Perhaps it was well for Mr. Pecksniff that his venerable friend found in his, Mr. Pecksniff's features, an exclusive and engrossing object of contemplation. For if his eyes had gone astray, and he had compared young Martin's bearing with that of his zealous defender, the latter disinterested gentleman would scarcely have shown to greater advantage than on the memorable afternoon when he took Tom Pinch's last receipt in full of all demands. One really might have thought there was some quality in Mr. Pecksniff, an emanation from the brightness and purity within him, perhaps, which set off and adorned his foes. They looked so gallant and so manly beside him. "'Not a word,' said Martin, for the second time. "'I remember that I have a word to say, Pecksniff,' observed the old man. "'But a word. "'You spoke of being indebted to the charitable help of some stranger for the means of returning to England. "'Who is he, and what help in money did he render you?' 
Although he asked this question of Martin, he did not look towards him, but kept his eyes on Mr. Pecksniff as before. It appeared to have become a habit with him, both in a literal and figurative sense, to look to Mr. Pecksniff alone. Martin took out his pencil, tore a leaf from his pocket-book, and hastily wrote down the particulars of his debt to Mr. Bevan. The old man stretched out his hand for the paper, and took it, but his eyes did not wander from Mr. Pecksniff's face. "'It would be a poor pride and a false humility,' said Martin, in a low voice, "'to say I do not wish that to be paid, or that I have any present hope of being able to pay it. "'But I never felt my poverty so deeply as I feel it now.' "'Read it to me, Pecksniff,' said the old man. Mr. Pecksniff, after approaching the perusal of the paper, as if it were a manuscript confession of a murder, complied. "'I think, Pecksniff,' said old Martin, "'I could wish that to be discharged. I should not like the lender, who was abroad, who had no opportunity of making inquiry, and who did, as he thought, a kind action, to suffer. An honourable sentiment, my dear sir, your own entirely, but a dangerous precedent,' said Mr. Pecksniff, permit me to suggest. "'It shall not be a precedent,' returned the old man. "'It is the only recognition of him. But we will talk of it again. You shall advise me. There is nothing else?' "'Nothing else,' said Mr. Pecksniff buoyantly, "'but for you to recover this intrusion, this cowardly and indefensible outrage on your feelings, with all possible dispatch, and smile again.' "'You have nothing more to say?' inquired the old man. "'laying his hand with unusual earnestness on Mr. Pecksniff's sleeve. "'Mr. Pecksniff would not say what rose to his lips, "'for reproaches, he observed, were useless. "'You have nothing at all to urge. You are sure of that. "'If you have, no matter what it is, speak freely. "'I will oppose nothing that you ask of me,' said the old man. "'The tears rose in such abundance to Mr. Pecksniff's eyes "'at this proof of unlimited confidence on the part of his friend "'that he was fain to clasp the bridge of his nose convulsively "'before he could at all compose himself. "'When he had the power of utterance again, "'he said with great emotion that he hoped he should live to deserve this, "'and added that he had no other observation whatever to make.' For a few moments the old man sat looking at him, with that blank and motionless expression which is not uncommon in the faces of those whose faculties are on the wane in age. But he rose up firmly, too, and walked towards the door, from which Mark withdrew to make way for him. The obsequious Mr. Pecksniff proffered his arm. The old man took it. Turning at the door, he said to Martin, waving him off with his hand, "'You have heard him. Go away. It is all over. Go.' Mr. Pecksniff murmured certain cheering expressions of sympathy and encouragement as they retired, and Martin, awakening from the stupor into which the closing portion of this scene had plunged him, to the opportunity afforded by their departure, caught the innocent cause of all in his embrace and pressed her to his heart. "'Dear girl,' said Martin, "'he has not changed you. Why, what an impotent and harmless knave the fellow is!' "'You have restrained yourself so nobly. You have borne so much.' "'Restrained myself,' cried Martin cheerfully. "'You were by, and were unchanged, I knew. What more advantage did I want? The sight of me was such a bitterness to the dog that I had my triumph in his being forced to endure it. But tell me, love, for the few hasty words we can exchange now are precious. What is this which has been rumoured to me? Is it true that you are persecuted by this knave's addresses?' 
I was, dear Martin, and to some extent am now, but my chief source of unhappiness has been anxiety for you. Why did you leave us in such terrible suspense? Sickness, distance, the dread of hinting at our real condition, the impossibility of concealing it except in perfect silence, the knowledge that the truth would have pained you infinitely more than uncertainty and doubt, said Martin hurriedly, as indeed everything else was done and said in those few hurried moments, were the causes of my writing only once. But, Pecksniff, you needn't fear to tell me the whole tale, for you saw me with him face to face, hearing him speak and not taking him by the throat. What is the history of his pursuit of you? Is it known to my grandfather? Yes. And he assists him in it? No, she answered eagerly. Thank heaven, cried Martin that it leaves his mind unclouded in that one respect. "'I do not think,' said Mary, "'it was known to him at first. "'When this man had sufficiently prepared his mind, "'he revealed it to him by degrees. "'I think so, but I only know it from my own impression, "'not from anything they told me. "'Then he spoke to me alone.' "'My grandfather did?' said Martin. "'Yes, spoke to me alone, and told me—' "'What the hound had said,' cried Martin, "'don't repeat it.' "'And said I knew well what qualities he possessed, "'that he was moderately rich, in good repute, "'and high in his favour and confidence. "'But seeing me very much distressed, "'he said that he would not control or force my inclinations, "'but would content himself with telling me the fact. "'He would not pain me by dwelling on it, or reverting to it, "'nor has he ever done so since, but has truly kept his word.' "'The man himself?' asked Martin. "'He has had few opportunities of pursuing his suit. "'I have never walked out alone or remained alone an instant in his presence. "'Dear Martin, I must tell you,' she continued, "'that the kindness of your grandfather to me remains unchanged. "'I am his companion still. "'An indescribable tenderness and compassion seem to have mingled themselves with his old regard, "'and if I were his only child I could not have a gentler father.' What former fancy or old habit survives in this, when his heart has turned so cold to you, is a mystery I cannot penetrate. But it has been, and it is, a happiness to me, that I remain true to him, that if he should wake from his delusion, even at the point of death, I am here, love, to recall you to his thoughts. Martin looked with admiration on her glowing face, and pressed his lips to hers. I have sometimes heard and read, she said, that those whose powers had been enfeebled long ago, and whose lives had faded, as it were, into a dream, have been known to rouse themselves before death, and inquire for familiar faces once very dear to them, but forgotten, unrecognized, hated even in the meantime. Think, if with his old impressions of this man, he should suddenly resume his former self, and find in him his only friend." "'I would not urge you to abandon him, dearest,' said Martin, "'though I could count the years we are to wear out asunder. "'But the influence this fellow exercises over him "'has steadily increased, I fear.' "'She could not help admitting that. "'Steadily, imperceptibly, and surely, "'until it was paramount and supreme, "'she herself had none, "'and yet he treated her with more affection "'than at any previous time. "'Martin thought the inconsistency "'a part of his weakness and decay.' "'Does the influence extend to fear?' said Martin. "'Is he timid of asserting his own opinion in the presence of this infatuation? "'I fancied so just now. "'I have thought so often. 
often when we are sitting alone, almost as we used to do, and I have been reading a favourite book to him, or he has been talking quite cheerfully, I have observed that the entrance of Mr. Pecksniff has changed his whole demeanour. He has broken off immediately, and become what you have seen to-day. When we first came here, he had his impetuous outbreaks, in which it was not easy for Mr. Pecksniff, with his utmost plausibility, to appease him. But these have long since dwindled away. He defers to him in everything, and has no opinion upon any question but that which is forced upon him by this treacherous man. Such was the account, rapidly furnished in whispers, and interrupted, brief as it was, by many false alarms of Mr. Pecksniff's return, which Martin received of his grandfather's decline, and of that good gentleman's ascendancy. He heard of Tom Pinch, too, and Jonas, too, with not a little about himself into the bargain, for though lovers are remarkable for leaving a great deal unsaid on all occasions, and very properly desiring to come back and say it, they are remarkable also for a wonderful power of condensation, and can, in one way or other, give utterance to more language, eloquent language, in any given short space of time, than all the six hundred and fifty-eight members in the Commons House of Parliament of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland, who are strong lovers, no doubt, but of their country only, which makes all the difference. For in a passion of that kind, which is not always returned, it is the custom to use as many words as possible, and express nothing whatever. A caution from Mr. Tapley, a hasty interchange of farewells, and of something else which the proverb says must not be told of afterwards, a white hand held out to Mr. Tapley himself, which he kissed with the devotion of a knight-errant, more farewells, more something else's, a parting word from Martin that he would write from London and would do great things there yet. Heaven knows what, but he quite believed it. And Mark and he stood on the outside of the Pecksniffian halls. "'A short interview after such an absence,' said Martin, sorrowfully. "'But we are well out of the house. We might have placed ourselves in a false position by remaining there even so long, Mark.' "'I don't know about ourselves, sir,' he returned. "'But somebody else would have got into a false position "'if he had happened to come back again while we was there. "'I had the door already, sir. "'If Pecksniff had showed his head "'or had only so much as listened behind it, "'I would have caught him like a walnut. "'He's the sort of man,' added Mr. Tapley, musing, "'as would squeeze soft, I know.' "'A person who was evidently going to Mr. Pecksniff's house "'passed them at this moment. "'He raised his eyes at the mention of the architect's name,' and when he had gone on a few yards, stopped and gazed at them. Mr. Tapley also looked over his shoulder, and so did Martin, for the stranger, as he passed, had looked very sharply at them. "'Who may that be, I wonder?' said Martin. "'The face seems familiar to me, but I don't know the man.' "'He seems to have an amiable desire that his face should be tolerable familiar to us,' said Mr. Tapley, "'for he's a-staring pretty hard. He'd better not waste his beauty, for he ain't got much to spare.' Coming in sight of the dragon, they saw a travelling carriage at the door. "'And a Salisbury carriage, eh?' said Mr. Tapley. "'That's what he came in, depend upon it. "'What's in the wind now? "'A new pupil, I shouldn't wonder. "'Perhaps it's a order for another grammar school, of the same pattern as the last.' Before they could enter at the door, Mrs. Lupin came running out, and, beckoning them to the carriage, showed them a portmanteau with the name of Chuzzlewit upon it. "'Miss Pecksniff's husband, it was,' said the good woman to Martin. 
I didn't know what terms you might be on, and was quite in a worry till you came back.' "'He and I have never interchanged a word yet,' observed Martin, "'and as I have no wish to be better or worse acquainted with him, I will not put myself in his way. We passed him on the road, I have no doubt. I am glad he timed his coming as he did.' "'Upon my word, Miss Pecksniff's husband travels gaily. "'A very fine-looking gentleman with him in the best room now,' whispered Mrs. Lupin, glancing up at the window as they went into the house. "'He has ordered everything that can be got for dinner, and has the glossiest moustaches and whiskers ever you saw.' "'Has he?' cried Martin. "'Why, then, we'll endeavour to avoid him, too, in the hope that our self-denial may be strong enough for the sacrifice.' "'It is only for a few hours,' said Martin, dropping wearily into a chair behind the little screen in the bar. "'Our visit has met with no success, my dear Mrs. Lupin, and I must go to London.' "'Dear, dear!' cried the hostess. "'Yes, one foul wind no more makes a winter than one swallow makes a summer. I'll try it again. Tom Pinch has succeeded. With his advice to guide me, I may do the same. I took Tom under my protection once.' "'God save the mark,' said Martin, with a melancholy smile, "'and promised I would make his fortune. "'Perhaps Tom will take me under his protection now "'and teach me how to earn my bread.'" End of chapter 43